child is stolen away in an act of violence, a spouse, a parent, is killed in a random crime, and the person responsible is never caught, never identified. When the search for a killer goes cold, families are left behind without justice, and investigators spend sleepless nights reanalyzing each unanswered question. I'm Paige Kelton with Action News Jax, and we're partnering with Project Cold Case and the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office to put the spotlight on unsolved local crimes. The goal? To generate a tip that leads to an arrest. They're called cold cases, and they're more than a stack of files sitting in a vault collecting dust. They're a constant reminder that someone got away with murder. Here's Action News Jack's Lorena Inclan to introduce us to the people at the heart of our partnership, Project Cold Case. We are joined by Sergeant Dan Jansen, the head of JSO's Cold Case Unit, and also Ryan Backman, the founder of Project Cold Case, a local nonprofit here in Jacksonville. And I want to dive into it first with the basics. So, Sergeant Jansen, I'll start with you. What makes a cold case? What a cold case is, um, it's not really a simple definition for me. A cold case is an unsolved uh, homicide case, and and we have cold cases that are in sex crimes and and other uh, arenas as well. But um, representing the homicide unit, a cold case is an unsolved homicide. Some cases we we may identify suspects in, in a case, that don't have enough to meet the burden of proof, and so it's an unresolved case. So uh, those words kind of interchange from time to time. So some cases are unsolved. We have no suspects identified, uh, and then some cases are unresolved. You know, we we just need to get them resolved, even though an arrest hasn't been made. So That's interesting, that distinction. Um, And I, I think a lot of people may not realize that. So it's very difficult, um, for law enforcement to sort of get all the pieces to the puzzle together, right? Talk about that in terms of um, making sure you have everything you need to then go to the state attorney and say, we're ready. Well, so when it comes to uh, any homicide case, uh, cold cases or otherwise, uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, mitigating factors for resolving a case. Um, evidence, witnesses, uh, testimonies, uh, sworn testimonies. That the, there's there's so many facets to the case. You know, uh, when I say evidence, evidence encompasses cell phone records, DNA, you know, just tons and tons of different types of evidence, blood evidence. Uh, and then when you talk about witness testimony, you know, is it uh, is it hearsay or is it uh, you know eyewitness or an audio witness? Or, so there's a lot of variables that come into play before you you prep a case for the state attorney's office. But let's shift for a second to cold case. Uh, with cold case, uh, you're dealing with the effects of time. So. Um, I don't have cell phone records available to me. I have limited evidence. I have limited testimony. Sometimes our witnesses pass away over time. Sometimes they don't. You know, sometimes we have them available. Um, sometimes memories lapse over time. They don't remember everything as of the day it happened. I think when, some, when people hear the, the phrase cold case, they might think that it's a case from the 70s, from the 60s. Does, that, does the amount of time that has passed um, add to the definition of a cold case? Not really. So um, there's not a there's not a fixed amount of time for a cold case. Um, and, and before I go into the time factor of it, cold case seems to be more of a pop culture type terminology that's used uh, for an unsolved case. And so 
uh, it's it's very uh, you know it's very sexy right now to say oh it's a cold case let me you know in that respect but in, at the end of the day um, what really defines a cold case is it's unsolved you know and it could some of them happen in a short amount of time and Ryan can talk to you about that in his dad's case which is my my team worked and then some of them take even a lot more time because there's so many uh, moving parts to it that we we just keep continuing work and work if there's a ton of evidence we you know we, we try submitting uh, evidence to FDLE for them to run and they run a, a batch of evidence and say okay well, we didn't come up with enough out of there send us the next batch and so because we don't send all of our evidence all at one time to FDLE we, we kind of piecemeal it out and so we, we have to work through these these cases and um, I would I would say that a good benchmark is I'm not going to suspend a case until it's over a year old. That's again, that's just a benchmark. That's not a hard line in the sand, but um, it's going to have to be. You know, my detectors are going to hold on to it for a year before they uh, before they move on. And when you say suspend a case, what do you mean by that? Basically, what that does is, um, as new cases come in, they their you know their obligation to work on the new cases is is existing. So. Um, if there's no more moving parts to to a case that's unsolved, you're, you've extinguished all your witnesses, you've extinguished all your evidence, and there's you know you're waiting on a tip or a lead or some bit of evidence to come back or or something. Then what we'll do is we'll put the case in, in what we would call a suspension. Um, I don't know status. So. Uh, and all that does is kind of sets it off to the side to where it's still there. We look at it on occasion, and most of it ends up coming to cold case to our unit and um, until we get some movement on it. So uh, obviously we can't create evidence. We can't create witnesses. We can't create uh, an inmate tip. And, and these are all part of our, our um, protocol for solvability. With such a large number of cold cases, around 1,400, um, is there with the older cases, do you know more or less which is one of the oldest ones you have on record? I don't know if you know that off the top of your head. I, I don't off the top mm -hmm. of my head. We have cases, I think the oldest case that I have in our vault is uh, from 1931. And so uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the date. Um, and so it, there comes a point in cold cases where they become historical and where the likelihood is that uh, the suspect's not going to be alive, you know. And sometimes you can determine that information just by reading the case itself. You know, if you open up a 1940 case and it says in the case that the suspect appeared to be a 50-year-old, you know, white male, then the likelihood is he would have to be, you know, over 100 years old and he's probably not alive. But they're still considered cold cases, but historical cold sure. cases, I sure. guess. So, and, and there's not, a, there's not a, a definitive date for us at this point to say, okay, I'm not going to look at that one, you know, and, unless you start getting into the 30s. But, but we also, in our unit, we handle records requests for, for homicides. And I, and I do get records requests for cases in the 30s. Um, the reason why that I actually went and looked when I first came to the unit to see what the oldest case was, I had a family reach out and ask if they could have a copy of I want to say it was a grandfather that was killed back in a triple murder in the 30s. So I went back into the vault to see if that even existed, if we had it on file. Um, wasn't able to find it, but 
Uh, it was, I think it was 1930, actually. So that's when I determined that it was 1931. Sergeant Jansen, um, with your expertise in, in this arena, I want to get a little bit personal with you as well, though. Um, what's the, the most challenging part for you in terms of speaking to families when you have to tell them that you have to suspend a case? What's that like? So that, that's, a, that's a tough. That's, that's a tough thing to do. Uh, it's not easy. Uh, no one likes that. It's a, it's a no-win situation. Um, I actually had that conversation with Ryan. Uh, and so it's, you know, you bring him into the police memorial building. We sit down in, in our conference room and we just have a, you know, hard conversation about the facts of the case. You know, these are the facts of the case. This is where we stand. Um, we want the families to understand that uh, we don't forget about them. You know, they're there. And even though there's, a, there's you know, a, hundreds of cases, uh, by no stretch of the imagination do we, do we ever forget about them. On the other side of the coin, what's it like to get back a piece of DNA evidence or, or test results from some sort of evidence and realize that you may have a good chance of solving this case after X oh, amount of years? So there's no immediate gratification in cold cases. So we, can, we can all agree on that. So it is highly rewarding when, when you do solve a case. And the, the reward is all those conversations that we have to have with these families saying, hey, listen, we're, we're out of evidence. We're out of uh, witness testimony. We're out of anything that's going to help us in this case for now. Um, the reward is we get to bring them back in and say, <clears throat> hey, listen, we got great news. We've effected an arrest on an individual who's responsible for your loved one's murder. Does that reaction from family ever get old? No, no, it doesn't. And you know, it's, it's um, what, what, what normally happens in this, in this type of situation, and I kind of let you on, a, on the inside, if you will, of, of delivering that news is uh, almost every time that I've done it, they look at you across the table and they just say, what did you say? And I said, yeah, we made an arrest. And they, they're in shock, and they look at you again, and they say, for what? For murder. You know? And so they, it's, it's a very an emotional type thing, and, and they, they just can't believe it. And you almost have to tell them four or five times that, yes, there's an individual responsible for killing your loved one. He's arrested, and he's in jail. You know? But that's just the beginning of the road, too, by the way. So then there's, there's another hard conversation that comes after that, because we solved the case but we haven't resolved the case because now there's a prosecution that lies in front of us and that's when we partner up with the state attorney's office, Melissa Nelson and, and her uh, attorneys and we try to put together the best case possible based on what we have in cold case being limited evidence, limited information. It's very challenging, but it's highly rewarding. And, and we'll get into that part of, of the family side when we speak to Ryan Backman here in a, in, in a little bit. Um, Speaking of, of that ev evidence that comes back and, and you finally you, you get a hit on, on some evidence, some people might wonder uh, if there is a certain reason to go back to, to certain cases. How important is it for families to keep that uh, case out there? So um, what's interesting about that is uh, when I took over Cold Case, that's when I really partnered up with Ryan in, in a business type relationship, I should say. He's unique because he in fact has, a, his family has a case with us. 
So I knew Ryan superficially because of the case, but I didn't know him as intimate as I do now to the extent that we're working together. Um, so to me, partnering up with someone, with, with, a fam with a family member and being able to, you know, uh, um, start talking about getting these cases out into the, in, into the, uh, to the community, if you will, and trying to, I, I call it tickling the atmosphere, you know, it, by uh, talking about the details of the case that we can talk about and, and knowing when there's witnesses out there and knowing when there's um, evidence out there and, and talking about them, that's when you start getting a, a little bit of movement on them. And I think it's just important that it gets out in the media and it gets out in the community and that, that we look at all these cases. Sergeant, before I move to, to Ryan, I'd like to get your thoughts on what you think the biggest misconception is. Hands down, the biggest misconception is that, that we don't care about the case or that um, we don't care about the families of the case or that uh, they just sit on the shelf and, and, you know, that we've given up. And that's, hands down, that's probably the, the, the biggest thing I see. And sometimes we're kind of looked adversarially. And, and what I try to do when I speak with these family members is let them know that, that we need to be on the same page, you know, because there's sometimes um, opinions and information is lost over time. Uh, one of the things early on that I like to do and the detectives like to do is to reach out to these family members and former detectives. In fact, uh, in the Carol Barrett case, um, I just got a call yesterday from the, uh, the fingerprint analyst from Florida Department of Law Enforcement who's been retired now for several years because I have some questions about what he read and what, what he was seeing. And so, and I like to reach back to them because a lot of times they'll give you their opinion, which they can't document in a report because reports are just facts. But to me, when I talk to a detective and he says, hey, listen, he's the one that did it. There's no doubt in my mind he did it. Proving it's going to be difficult. Well, then I'll, you know, I'll play with their, with their minds and say, well, okay, so, yeah, why do you think he's the one who did it? And what is it leading you down that road? And, and so, and that, that opinion is very, very strong. And so um, I guess we should have a section in the report for opinions, you know, <laughs> but, but we can't do that. So, so um, look at the context, everything around it, just to understand it better, is what you're saying. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. So, um, so the biggest, the biggest portion to answer your question again is, 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 I want the families to know that the sheriff's office and our code case unit does care about every case. Um, we have limited resources, you know, as far as personnel is concerned. I think that's one of the battles the sheriff deals with on a daily basis because our first priority is responding to calls for service, you know. And so um, he's got to keep the force, at, you know, at a, staffed at a certain amount and hitting that minimum staffing is, uh, is not an always an easy task. So, you know, in, in the perfect world, could I have a, a separate team that handles only officer-involved shootings and a, a couple of teams that handle just cold cases? Oh, sure. You know, that, anybody would like to have that, but we're not afforded that um, availability at this time. Thank you, Sergeant Jansen. I appreciate sure. it. Um, Ryan Backman, founder of Project Cold Case, tell us a little bit about your organization and why you, you founded it. Sure. Um, so. 2009, uh, October 10th, 2009, uh, it's a typical fall Saturday. My wife and I were getting ready to go to some friend's house to watch college football. And uh, I looked at my phone, I had 
two missed calls from blocked numbers and a voicemail. And when I checked the voicemail, uh, it was someone from the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office saying there had been an emergency and I needed to call them back right away. Um, I did, and, and in that phone call, uh, the detective said, are you at home? Uh, and I was, and he said, we're turning into your neighborhood right now. Uh, I'll, we'll be at your house in a minute to talk to you. And I said, well, is everything okay? And they said, no, but we'll talk to you when we get there. So I immediately you know, called out to my wife and told her that something bad had happened and the police were on their way to our house. Um, I went out the front door to, to meet the, the officers as they were pulling in and basically an unmarked police car pulled up and two plainclothes homicide detectives, at the time I didn't know they were homicide detectives, but they stepped out of the car. They walked up to me and, and said, you know, we hate to tell you this, but your dad was murdered earlier today. Um, and so, you know, your world immediately changes. Uh, you know, my wife and I were getting ready to celebrate our second wedding anniversary. Um, we were getting ready to go have fun with friends in a carefree world in the bubble we lived in. There, you know, that, that was never, that never crossed my mind. When that, even when that phone call came in, I thought there's been a car accident and my mom has a broken rib and is at the hospital. I mean, in my world, that was as tragic uh, a situation as I was gonna find myself in. And unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Um, I worked in the architectural field at the time, and in 2009, the economy was pretty bad, uh, and I ended up losing that job uh, a short time after my dad's murder, and really was lost trying to figure out, you know, the case was being investigated. I had faith that the detectives were doing everything they could. I was trying not to bother them. I think I would usually send an email on the 10th of every month just to kind of check in. And, um, uh, but I didn't, you know, really get that involved at, at that time. You always just kind of think that any day now I'm going to get that call that an arrest has been made. Uh, and it's all new territory for me. So I didn't want to overstep bounds, but I, I wanted to be in the loop. But I, I really trusted kind of the system and that, that if there was something I needed to know, somebody would call me. But it's hard to sit at home and keep waiting on that phone call and hoping for that phone call. Well, uh, a local organization that unfortunately isn't around anymore reached out to me at the time and they served families that had lost loved ones to homicide and they said, uh, we have a support meeting that we do monthly and we wanted to invite you. And that was kind of the perfect time for that for me because I had just lost my job and was really kind of the lowest I got after, after my dad's murder. And I went to this support meeting and I sat in a room with three other men that had all lost children and, and so it, it gave me perspective because I was very low, but I realized that, you know, there, I was supposed to bury my dad, not the way I did, but he was supposed to die before I did. And that I was sitting in a room full of people that had to bury their children, you know, and uh, that, you know, gave me perspective. And it also started me on kind of a path of healing and knowing that I wasn't alone. Uh, I volunteered for that organization for a number of months following that, that support meeting, and then eventually they hired me to become a victim advocate, and I, I switched careers. This was obviously my passion, and I spent uh, four and a half years advocating for families of, of homicide victims and going to court with them, meetings with the, the detectives, meetings with the prosecutors. I spent a lot of time in the courthouse sitting through trials, and always in the back of my head was, you know, am I going to have my day in court? Uh, you know, is my family going to get to sit here and, and see justice served? And 
about, so I started as a victim advocate less than a year after my dad was murdered and about a year and a half, a little less than a year and a half after his murder, I got the call to come down and meet and uh, that the case was suspended. And that was another kind of turning point uh, in my journey of dealing with this because I don't think people understand that at some point the evidence does run out. At some point there is nothing else to look at. And, and you always think that, you know, oh, there's, you know, the detectives are working on it, if not daily, it's in the back of their head. And, and it is, but you don't realize that one day there's, there's nothing else to look at. And, and what, are, what is the detective supposed to do at that point? So w emotionally it was very hard for me, you know, to hear that, that uh, the case is suspended. It basically means that unless somebody comes forward with new information, there's, not, there's nothing they can do. There's nothing they can look at. Um, what was that like for you to hear the detective say that? It was, it, it was almost as emotional as, you know, the detective telling me my dad had been murdered because you don't, you don't think you're ever going to hear that uh, they're stopping looking, you know, that they can't look for anymore. And so you feel like the bad guy, there's somebody always after the bad guy. TV is, you know, all, they're always after the bad guy. And, and the reality is, is there comes a point where there's nothing to, no one to go after. There's nothing to look at. Um, and, and so that was hard for me to, to come to terms with. And I had to separate myself, you know, emotionally from it being my dad's case and look at it logically. They had done everything they could at the scene. They had processed every bit of evidence there was. There were things outside of my control and outside of their control that led to my dad's case going cold. I consider relatively quickly, like I said, less than a year and a half. But I think, you know, the evidence um, just was not there. There wasn't a lot to look for. But they put a year and a half into, into trying. And uh, so I had to think about it logically. They did everything they could. I believe they did everything they could. And, and for whatever reason, it, it wasn't enough to come up with a suspect and make an arrest. At what point did you uh, realize that uh, you needed to start Project Cold Case? So as, the, as I was going to court with these individuals from this other organization and, and we were having support meetings and a lot of the topics during those support meetings was, um, was court and how slow the judicial process is and how, um, you know, I'm, I mean, the Constitution is based to protect the innocent until they're proven guilty. So it's hard for a family that says, that's the guy that killed my loved one to let the system work, which is, you know, takes, month after month of status hearings and pre-trials where there is no discussion, there's no evidence, there's no, but you know, family, it feels like it's very important to be there sometimes. So they go and sit and then they get frustrated that it takes so long, but, but that is the system that we have in this country and it, and it works. It just takes time. And, and they should under also, also understand that you only have one shot. You only have one shot in the courtroom. You don't get to try again and try again. It's, that's why we have double jeopardy. So. Um, we want to make sure that the case is, you know, fit for trial before we even think about going across the street to the state attorney's office and presenting a case to them to um, file charges. So it, it, and I've had to have that conversation with families and say, listen, and, and, and in our partnership, this really works good because coming from law enforcement, it doesn't always sound as genuine as it does from Ryan, who's been down that path. 
where he can let them know that, listen, I'm not, I'm not comfortable taking, even though we have a name in, in the, your loved one's case, I'm not comfortable taking it in the courtroom. I'm, I'm confident that this is the person responsible, but there's a burden of proof there. And if we take it into a courtroom and we lose, you think you feel bad now. How bad are you going to feel if someone's acquitted and then they, you can no longer ever in their entire life bring charges against them? You almost have to explain, because this is new to a lot of families, it's right? It's brand they, new. Yeah, they've I mean, never... Most people have never dealt with something mm -hmm. like this. I had never dealt with something like this. And Everything, it's a little confusing, too. It's very confusing, and it doesn't seem... Um, the system doesn't seem to favor the victim or the victim's family. We have to stay quiet and sit back and wait for the system to work. And that's a very hard thing for a family that has just lost somebody. And, and kind of back to, to your question, as I would sit in these support meetings and everybody would talk about you know, the slow judicial process, there was a, a smaller group of these families that were going, you know, we don't even have an arrest. Like, we don't even know if we're ever going to have our, our day in court. So I started to kind of identify that maybe there was a need for a specific organization that was a little more focused on unsolved cases than just, you know, the broad spectrum of, of all homicides. Uh, so in 2015, I incorporated Project Cold Case and, and, st and kind of started the ball rolling to see uh, if we were going to, if this was a worthy organization that would be able to help people and be able to succeed and survive. And so the kind of goal was, let's give it a year and let's see if, if this idea is as important to others as, as it would be for me and as we think it will be. Uh, we found out real quick that it not only was it as important, it was more important than we even realized. And we started getting contact from people all across the country uh, wanting help. What do you hear the most from the people who contact you? My loved one's forgotten. Um, that, that people don't care. Not, not specific law enforcement doesn't care. I mean, people don't care. You know, the, the media has moved on, the neighbors have moved on, the coworkers have moved on. Um, you know, some family members have moved on. Uh, you know, it's, it's a burden for a family to, to think that someone that was so important to them is now not even thought about by anybody else. And, and sometimes that's not even true. You know, a lot of times people don't know how to approach that subject with a family. So they just think that, I don't want to bring up any, anything bad that's hurtful or that would cause them pain, so I'm just not going to mention their loved one. Well, the reality is these families, the, every day, that, that lost loved one is in their mind. There's not a moment in the day where they're not thinking about that person. And sometimes to hear someone say, you know, I just wanted you to know I came across a picture of your dad or your sister or your mother or your son or your daughter the other day. And or I thought about this time we were all together. Like, just hearing that as a family member is so important because you really do. Uh, and I found myself doing it too. You start to think, like, am I the only one? that cares that my dad's gone, you know? And, and my dad luckily had a lot of, of really close friends, a lot of people that cared about him. And, and it took me a while, but now I have relationships with them and they want to hear about what Project Cold Case is doing. They're proud to know that, that he's not forgotten and, that, and, and they're quick to let me know, uh, the story, share the stories of when I wasn't around, before I was born or, you know, whatever. And, uh, and that, helps me heal, you know, and I think that, that that's one of the biggest things we deal with with these other families is 
they feel like people don't care. And when Project Cold Case says, hey, we're gonna put your loved one's picture on our website and we're gonna do a cold case spotlight on it and you know, in the future, sometimes that's all we have to do and sometimes that's all we can do. I, I don't have control over uh, other jurisdictions, I don't have control over this one, but, uh, but I can call Dan. I have a relationship with the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office that has grown by leaps and bounds since Project Cold Case began and since Dan you know, took over in Cold Case. And all the way up to the Sheriff, we have a, a very good working relationship and partnership and they kind of understand that, that we have very defined and unique roles, but there's some overlap in there. You know, there's not a lot, I'm not doing any investigating and they're not doing any, you know, support meetings, but, but there's this other part of that pie where, where we are very much, you know, it helps to be together and not, and not adversarial and throwing rocks at each other. So, so when I get a, when we solve a case like, uh, let's take Kamaya Mobley for an example, and we, we resolve a case and, and solve it and an and arrest is made, generally what will happen is I'll, I'll get a flood of phone calls from various individuals saying, hey, can you take a look at, I saw where you just solved this one, I saw where you saw Farah, the Hyde, and can you take a look at our case? And, um, or can you put, uh, the last phone call I, I received was, can you put my daughter's case in the media as if I had that control, you know? And I, I said, well, here's what I can do for you. You know, number one, we'll see if it meets the protocols for solvability. And if it does, we'll certainly open, it doesn't cost me anything to open it up and take a look at it. And, and so we, I, I have that conversation with them about the protocols and what we need and before we open up another case or the case. And then I said, well, as far as the media is concerned, no, I can't pick up the phone and say, hey, Action News, will you put this uh, back in as, as a spotlight for any reason at all? But what I can do is I can call Ryan and I tell these families this, listen, there's an individual who's a great advocate. He's got a social media website. He can really get the story out there. His name is Ryan Backman. I'll let him tell you about what happened. His, he lost his dad to, to a homicide for murder. And so um, let me hook you up with him. And, and every time I do that, it's always welcomed with open arms. I said, that would be great. And, and I let them know that we share his, his, uh, the links in his social media with the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office and, and conversely. And, and so it's a, it's a symbiotic mutual relationship and that over time, he gets a lot of exposure of their cases because uh, we're getting thousands of hits on the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office social media uh, realm. And so when we, when we when, like Ryan said, when we overlap and we have these two entities, the law enforcement and the advocacy, and they come together and they work as partners, it's a good thing. It's really good. Do you think sometimes with cases like Kamaya Mobley, Ron Hyde, uh, that it might give some people false hope? because their cases, not every case is different. So it does, just because one was solved doesn't mean theirs might be. I don't know if I'm gonna to subscribe to false hope because there's always hope, you know. Um, it, I, you know, you're, you're asking me, can I say that a case will never ever get solved? I, no, I can't say that because I can't predict what might happen. I've heard, I've seen over the course of the last 11 years, heard and seen cases that I thought would never get solved and then I've seen cases, and I've worked cases, where I thought, well, this is a slam dunk. And watch it just fall to pieces. And went, wow, how did this happen? You know, and so I can tell you stories about both incident, incidents, and one most recently. And so when you look at these two together, you think to yourself, well, you know, is there such a thing as false hope? No, I think there's always hope. Um, it's maybe not as strong with some cases as, as others. 
for an example, on the Francis Gordon case. Her, she went by Frankie, Frankie Gordon. There is a DNA profile that exists out there that has not been matched up to anyone at this point. To me, that's strong hope. You know, there's strong hope that one day this individual will end up getting in trouble for something and his DNA standard will be entered into CODIS and CODIS is going to say, hey, hey, we got a match. And then I'm going to get a call from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and they're going to say, hey, we got a hit on one of your DNA standards or profiles. Then there's cases that don't have a DNA profile, but yet, you know, would I say that, that there's, they should give up and not have hope? No. I think they should. I think there's a very fine line between hope and false hope, and I think that burden kind of falls on the family themselves. Uh, uh, you know, when a 43-year-old case is solved like Freddie Ferris, that should give hope to everybody with a cold case. But if that family has unrealistic expectations that their 43-year-old case is going to get solved because Freddie Ferris' case was solved, that's where I think you get into that realm of, you know, keep your expectations in check. I will always have hope that my dad's case will, will be solved, but I have put my trust in the people that investigate those cases and that technology will advance to a, a part that maybe somebody will come forward one day with information um, and that I will have hope, but a lot of those things are out of my control. I can only hand, you know, I can only control what I feel and, and my expectations, and so I keep those in check, and, and I encourage families to be realistic um, you know, always have hope because you never know where that, what that, what that missing piece is and where it could come from. So um, I think it's important that people just rely on that hope without getting too wrapped up in details about other cases because like you said, every case is so different and so specific and evidence in one is not the same as evidence in the other. Fingerprints, DNA, witnesses, I mean there's so much that goes into solving a case and not every case comes with all of that information. So in it, Ryan's case, and I can talk about this, he's aware of it. Um, it, it occurred in 2009 and most recently uh, within the past year because of changes in technology, we, we tried some other DNA um, uh, processing, if you will. Um, it, the, the results didn't yield anything positive and he's aware of that. However, that just kind of shows you that even in the course of you know, modern day technology, if you will. The case happens in 2009 and in 2016 we're trying some new technology and I can't say that in five years from now we might be trying again under a new type of technology. So um, there's it kind of relates back to hope. You know, is there hope? Sure there's hope. Always you know, hope. so, so uh, and, and there's and and I ask that because I know some people might, might wonder like, okay, well this case has DNA evidence, mine doesn't, so I don't think mine will ever get solved. But that's, that's a misnomer, because they're right, because right. you, you, you don't need a DNA, I mean obviously DNA is strong, right. but there could be witnesses, there could be somebody who maybe has been quiet their whole life and all of a sudden now had a change of heart, where you've seen that before, right? Yes, that is correct. Mm -hmm. and people forget that DNA hasn't been around since the beginning of investigative <laughs> techniques. Right, right. You know, a lot of cases were solved before DNA was ever there. Uh, right. So there, there's always hope. And Ryan, I want to get to your database, because that is one unique service that you do offer us with Project Cold Case. Tell me about how that has worked out and why it's so important to have it. Right, so, you know, as I was doing my research on 
cold cases and thinking that I was the only one out there, you know, dealing with this issue, uh, I found out that not only was I not the only one, that there's a whole lot of people out there that have uh, cases that haven't been solved. So uh, I started looking at what other states were doing, other jurisdictions, other organizations, and I found a group in Colorado that had successfully advocated for legislation, cold case legislation in Colorado, and created a statewide database of all the unsolved homicides in the entire state, uh, a cold case review team that would actually look at cases quarterly, and a task force that would identify best practices um, among the state and try to implement those across the state. Uh, I thought that was a great thing. It was, uh, they got that legislation passed in 2006, I believe. So, you know, 11 years ago, Colorado had legislation, you know, focused on this stuff. I brought it back to, to Florida. It's been a, you know, four or five years ago now and, um, and started pursuing that in Florida. Now, Colorado had 1,600 unsolved homicides in the entire state. And we knew that we had, you know, at the time over 1,200 in Duval County alone, so and no number for the entire state, um, and no number for Georgia, and no number for Alabama and South Carolina, and on and on and on. That Colorado was kind of leading this charge, and I wanted Florida to be at the forefront with them, and and uh, you know, identifying cold cases as a priority because it's easy for them to be at the low end of the priority spectrum when there's a reason it's cold. You know, we'll get back to that next week because we have something that's hot that's going on right now. Um, so I wanted to kind of spearhead a movement that would make it a priority. And I just couldn't get enough support from the right people to, you know, to succeed in, in a statewide database that was run by somebody else, uh, you know, uh, an, an agency that had connections with law enforcement. We were trying to get FDLE to, to house the database. But it was important enough to me that I realized, like, this has to happen. Like, this is important. So Project Cold Case, it was one of the first, you know, projects we took on, was we're going to develop a database, and we're going to input as many cold cases from the state of Florida as we can find, as we can find online, as we can get with public records requests uh, from every county in the state, and, and try to, one, identify a total number of cold cases, which is really hard because that's a moving number, because cases are solved and cases become cold very regularly. Uh, but we needed somewhere to start. And what we wanted with this database was we wanted it to be searchable by uh, not just interested parties that think that cold cases are intriguing, so they wanted to look them up, but we wanted people with information to be able to go to that database and say, you know, I saw a car involved in a drive-by 10 years ago and I just got out of there, I wonder what happened with that case. Well, there was nowhere for them to go and search for that. And it, I don't know names, I don't know, all I know is that, you know, in the fall of 2000 in a certain county, there was a drive-by shooting that I witnessed. Well, we wanted them to be able to search by parameters like that, not just Cliff Backman, you know, I, I don't, some people don't have a name. So they can put they can Fall put a range 2000, of dates. November 2000, yeah. like that. They can put a range of dates. They can put a county. They can, they can get as specific as names or as vague as, as two random dates. And, and they can look and see if there's a case that matches what they may have information on. And then one thing that's important about Project Cold Cases, we don't want to duplicate services. We're not investigating cold cases. We're also not guaranteeing anonymity and offering rewards because Crime Stoppers does that and they do a great job at that. So we want to direct people with information back to Crime Stoppers 
or the investigating agency. That doesn't mean we don't get tips. When we do, we pass them along, but they're not going to get a reward from Project Cold Case and they're not going to be guaranteed anonymity. So You, you not only uh, seek out the public records request, but you also get s submissions from families. Is that right? That's right. How many do you get on average? Um, we go kind of through waves. Uh, so we have hundreds that have been submitted to our, our, our site and un unfortunately they're not all homicides, so we have to vet every one of them. Um, sometimes it's a justified shooting, the family disagrees, or sometimes it could even be a suicide and the family disagrees. But again, we're limited. We're not investigating these cases. I can't prove that it's a suicide or a justified. I kind of have to go on what law enforcement says. We're just not at a point where we could dispute that at the time. And I don't know that we'll, we'll ever get there <laughs> where we have such a staff that we can handle that kind of stuff anyway. Um, but we have to vet all of those cases and then we have to reach out to the law enforcement agency that is investigating them and just kind of make sure that, that they understand who we are and what we're doing, that we're not stepping on toes, that we're not going to, you know, uh, point the finger at them and blame them for something. And, and then we start putting those cases into, into the database as well. So um, a, a family from, you know, rural Florida or even another state can actually submit the case to us and we'll put it on our website. Uh, obviously, we have a grant from the Florida Attorney General's office that allows us to do advocacy for victims in the state of Florida. And we have to find other funds for anything we do outside of the state. Kind of piggybacking off what he was saying, um, as far as Project Cold Case is concerned, when I took over the Cold Case unit and I partnered up with Project Cold Case, um, I've noticed over a short amount of time, it's really turned a corner. And the, his, the, the footprint that he's established here in Duval County is really starting to take off. It's really starting to grow. Um, Sheriff Williams believes wholeheartedly in, in his mission and has, has encouraged and, and expects us to be in a partnership with him. Um, and we have. And so uh, and Melissa Nelson gets elected to state attorney. And now she is, in fact, uh, in conversations with Ryan about uh, expanding Project Cold Case and getting assistance from the state attorney's office. Um, and now there's the Florida um, Sheriff's Association Cold Case Commission who has asked Ryan to be part of their board as well. So it's really starting to grow. It's really starting to get the attention that it needs. And I would encourage all local law enforcement agencies, even the surrounding ones, um, and, and, I, and I believe they do. I know that, that Chief Dooley at the beach has, has welcomed uh, Project Cold Case into his agency with great open arms. Um, I don't know how many, they don't have quite as many cases that we do. I think they're only in the teens. But um, nonetheless, uh, I would encourage all the local law enforcement agencies, uh, and, and quite frankly, it really should go nationwide. It really should. That's how, that's how important this message is. Um, but I've seen them turn the corner, and I know that it's, it's a step in the right direction, and it's a good thing. You know, when I think about nonprofits, when you think about Cancer Society or Wounded Warrior Project and these type of, of, um, of 501c3s, uh, you start to realize that uh, the cold case uh, mission, story, whatever you want to, however you want to classify it, is unique in itself. There's nothing else like like it out there, and it does need the attention. It does need the funding that it that it should be getting. And I'll ask both of you this question. Um, either one can answer. For those who are watching or listening, who have not been impacted by a homicide, who don't know anybody who has been impacted by a cold case, 
why should they care? Well, it's a, uh, it's a public safety issue. You know, at the end of the day, uh, there's a high likelihood that the person that murdered my dad is, is out walking among us. Now, there's a chance he's in jail for something else. There's a chance he's dead. But, uh, but when you have, you know, an estimated 15,000 unsolved murders in the entire state of Florida, um, and as mobile a community as we have now, that means, you know, murders from other places uh, are coming through our city all the time. And, and what I tell people is uh, why you should care is because the guy that killed my dad might be in line behind your wife at the bank or might live next door to your child's uh, bus stop. You know, this is important because nobody asks to be a murder victim and nobody wants to be the family left behind looking for answers. And when you are, you need the help of the community uh, and the support of the people in your area. I need JSO. They don't need me. I mean, as Project Colgate's, I think we have developed a good working relationship, but they don't need a, a family member, you know, um, but a family needs the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office, needs the, the homicide detectives and the cold case detectives. And, and I need the community. I need anyone that has any bit of information on any case to come forward. That family needs it, we need it, JSO needs it, the community needs it as a whole. And that's why I would say it's important. How important is it for families to stay out there, to keep this in the public eye? You know, it's, I think, of the utmost importance. And we're in a day and age where it's so easy. Social media, and I know people don't want to bog down their social media with, you know, negative, you know, murder, sad stories, but, but these are lives. You know, these were, these were people that were loved, that are now ripped away from their, their family. And these are families left behind that need someone to show they care. And the easiest thing anyone can do to help Project Cold Case is share a spotlight on Facebook, you know, on Twitter. It's the absolute easiest thing anybody could do. And, and I tell people all the time, we don't need a million people to see these cases. We need one. It may need to go through a million people to get to that right one. But, uh, but that's how important it is. And families that share their, their loved one's story on their social media account, I can't tell you how many of them have gotten more information, you know, have, have at least been able to advance the case to a point of getting it looked at again. Um, you know, some people have composite sketches. Share that stuff, you know. I mean, it, it is that important. And, and, you know, the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office can't share every single case every single day. And the, the local media can't share every single case every single day. At some point, you know, you got to kind of take a little bit of control of the situation and say, um, if, if no one else is going to do it, I'm going to do it. That's why Project Cold Case exists, because no one else was going to take on that responsibility and the burden. That's why that database exists, because no one else was going to do it. And instead of hitting a, a brick wall and saying like, okay, well, I guess that's it, you say, okay, well, now what? How am I going to reach that goal? And, and for these families that are looking for, um, looking at that hope, you know, Take, take hold of that and, and do what you can. I'm not advocating for going out and questioning people that you suspect or, or anything like that. I'm saying keep your loved one's image out there in the public. You never know who will see it and, and you never know where it might lead. And Ryan, before we wrap up, I, I sort of want to end with you on this note. You founded Project Cold Case out of a tragedy that happened in your, in your life. Do you sometimes think about what your dad might think or when you go home at night and, and, and you look at your daughter, you know, do you think about maybe this is the legacy that 
that you want her to see and, and your dad to see. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. I know my dad doesn't want to be the poster child for unsolved murder. You know, um, it's not the legacy he would have wanted to leave. But I also know that he would be proud that we took that tragedy and are able to help other people with it. And so uh, I'm okay with that. And, and with, when my daughter was born, my kind of my passion switched a little bit and my reasoning for it. Um, I always had that I want justice for my dad and everybody deserves justice. But then I had this little girl and I thought like, one day she's gonna ask me why she doesn't know her grandfather and who this guy is in these pictures. And I'm gonna have to explain to her that a bad guy took her grandfather away before she was ever born. And then one day I'm gonna have to explain to her that no, the bad guy didn't, isn't in jail. Sometimes the bad guys don't get caught. And I thought, if I'm going to have that conversation with her, I'm going to be able to follow it up with, but your dad did everything absolutely in his power to, to reach that goal and to help other families get there. And I would say that, um, you know, you say that we don't need you, but the, the fact of the matter is we do need community. And Project Cold Case is part of our community. Um, Ryan hit the nail right on the head. Uh, that means every time there's a case out there that's unsolved, there's there's an individual that's responsible walking around. So um, we can't do it all by ourselves. We, we need that partnership with the community. We need all the eyes and ears that we can have, that we can get our hands on. And Ryan's mission is bringing that up in the spotlight. So, so there is a need there, and I want you to know that. And I, and I believe the sheriff feels the same way, or else we wouldn't have this relationship, you know, if we could do it on our own. So um, th that relationship between the community and law enforcement is very important. That, uh, the community is our customer uh, at the bottom line. Thank you both for joining us. I appreciate it. Sergeant Dan Jansen, the head of JSO's Cold Case Unit, and Ryan Backman, the founder of Project Cold Case. We're going to continue to talk about this because it's an extremely important topic, but I appreciate you uh, in initially explaining what it is that you do, what it is that you both do to help the community and get uh, some of the people responsible for these crimes off the street. So I appreciate you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.